This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Leah Richards, hundreds of times my usual luminosity. And I'm Will Davis, ejecting vast clouds of gas. As is usual. More on that later. For now, hello and welcome. We have some new science for you, starting off with a very important question brought to you by the Wildlife Conservation Society, a question that has divided humanity since the dawn of time. And which I have never in my life paused to consider. Are penguins left or right-handed? Maybe you haven't thought of this, ever, as Leah has not. I don't know why you would have, really, but apparently people at the Wildlife Conservation Society have. I know there are some animals that do tend to be predominantly left or right-handed. I feel like polar bears are one of them, but I can't remember off the top of my head right now. It feels like one of those facts about polar bears that would be trotted out in some kind of kid's science book. Oh, they're left-handed, they cover their nose, they have black skin. That usual thing. Kids' science books and the student radio show I did in my first year at uni. We had an animal facts feature involving some true facts and some false facts. It was a lot of fun. In answer to the question, are penguins right or left-handed, the answer is... uh, not especially. Kind of both. It depends. Indeed, the only lateralisation, which is apparently the technical term for handedness, you know, when you don't have hands... I hadn't considered it before I got this far into reading the press release. Of course you can't say it, call it handedness, when you're talking about a penguin. They don't have hands. Flipperness, I suppose. Yeah, maybe, except the example that they've given where they did find lateralization was when penguins fought for dominance, with the more aggressive penguin using its left eye to look and attacking the penguin on its right side. So that doesn't involve flippers at all, I assume. I would assume fighting penguins would go straight for the sharp face. I hope I never find out. Yeah. Well, this research has been conducted by researchers in Punta Tombo, Argentina, looking at Magellanic penguins, Sphiniscus Magellanicus. And you can click through to the press release. There's also a link there to the journal. You can get a whole bunch of information from the paper. It is free. There's no paywall on this. And I'd just like to raise the attention to this being from the WCS newsroom, who have a whole panel of science stories called Three Sentence Science. This whole press release about penguin lateralization is just three sentences, and they do a really neat job of summing everything up with Do they have a preferred left or right? It depends, not especially. And that link will lead you to lots and lots of other stories about animals and plants, general fun biology stuff. Like that plants need bugs, that sea cucumbers are hard to farm, and the illegal pangolin trade in Africa should be tracked and hopefully stopped. Nice going, guys. In more nature news, we can head over to the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology, who have been doing some research about more birds, not penguins this time, but white-browed sparrow weavers, or Plosipasa mahali. And what they've discovered about the white-browed sparrow weaver is that once it has formed a relationship with a member of the opposite sex with whom they are building a family, they become, uh, drift-compatible, basically. Yeah, their brains sync up as they sing duets. And there's a whole bunch into the methodology of this, which I find A, fascinating, and B, adorable. Like the idea that to monitor and assess the brainwaves of the birds that they were assessing, and it was like 650 duets, 650 pairs of birds here, 
they all had to wear little hats and backpacks that only weighed, you know, a gram apiece each to record and synchronize up the brainwaves and make sure that the audio and brainwave data was being accurately transmitted to a nearby data hub. I just think that's cute. But also extremely cool that when the birds are singing, it's literally the signals in their brain are syncing up with each other via the song, which is wild, but also means that they can sing these pair songs with perfect timing, perfect harmony. And do human brains do something similar? I'd be really interested. It would be very interesting to find out. And uh, even across a larger crowd, if you could get a bunch of people joining in, the kind of the Radio Gaga-esque way, doing the clapping and the stamping together. I mean, even anecdotally with the reason people enjoy choirs, like singing together is a thing that has bonded many, many groups of humans all across history. So I would be very interested to see if there was any similar situation happening in a human brain when we sing together. Now, the situation in a bird brain is described as being controlled by a network of brain nuclei, the vocal control system. In one of these nuclei, the HVC, the call of the partner bird triggers a change in neuronal activity. This in turn affects its own singing. The result is a precise synchronization of brain activity of both birds. And then those brains form a network that functions like an extended circuit to organise the temporal pattern for the duet, making sure you have that tight synchronisation and that everything is going as closely as humans dancing with partners. And as an added benefit, because these birds aren't able to maintain their social structure in laboratory conditions, they've developed some clever and hardy technology in order to make these measurements you talked about. The transmitter hats, recording backpacks, and... All the electronics and technology had to withstand the extreme conditions of the Kalahari. Suzanne Hoffman, a scientist at the Department of Behavioral Neurobiology, notes the electronics for recording the signal were stored in a car. During the day, it got so hot that the laptop almost began to glow, but the recordings all worked out well, even when the birds in their transmitters were caught in one of the few downpours. And while we're talking of uh, mind control on a certain level, would you like to know how to make a viral YouTube advert? Oh, that's an interesting question. Like, before we get to the next story, if a bird starts singing, does the responding bird have any option in their brains syncing up? I know you've asserted that YouTube is mind controlling. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> but the idea that they are so tightly drift compatible. What if you don't want to be? Can you turn it off? I do want to know. I am not asserting that YouTube specifically is mind control, but that advertisers are trying to control you. Not necessarily in a direct, put the mind control gas in the room sort of way, but... Influence. Manipulate. Mm-hmm. How would they do that, of course? Well, they want something that's going to chime with the youth of today, something that's going to resonate with all audiences. They want content that will go viral. But you can't just make something viral, right? It has to happen organically. That's part of the whole thing, that it explodes beyond your control. I mean, I really hope so, except I'm fairly sure it has been done intentionally on a few occasions. Mm, well, maybe the American Marketing Association were involved in those occasions too, because what they've got here is kind of a guide for how to make your YouTube adverts go viral. As we go through some of this, you're probably going to reflect and think, oh yeah, now I saw an advert that went viral or that stuck with me, and it did probably a lot of these things. On the other hand, I'd be interested to know, given some of the things they suggest not doing in your advert if you want it to go viral, 
if it actually does that much for brand recognition. So what they've done is use two independent field studies that analysed 11 measures of emotion and over 60 advert characteristics. So this includes brands from the top 100 US advertisers in 2012 and historic advertisers from YouTube to determine some of the key behaviours, some of the key identifiers for a likely viral advert. Now I do want to really pick up on the top US advertisers in 2012. I'm not entirely sure over what period they were looking at the amount of sharing that was happening with these adverts, but in 2012... I was one of the young hip things on the internet who was following the zeitgeist, who was in tune with what was in. It's been seven years, and I am now absolutely mystified by what the teens are up to. What I'm saying is that the internet changes very quickly, and this data might not necessarily be useful right now. Yeah, it seems like the Uploads stopped being recorded and collected for this experiment on March 4th, 2014, and just think how much the world has changed in those last five years, let alone the internet, which moves much faster than everything else. There may be a few elements that need updating, but hey, you know what? That is further research. That is something to keep the American Marketing Association in business. So, five years ago, what would have gone viral? Well, turns out not much. 50% of adverts studied in this review were shared fewer than 158 times. 10% weren't shared at all. They found different sharing habits on different platforms, as you might expect. So on general platforms such as Facebook or the now-defunct Google Plus and Twitter, emotional ads were more likely to be shared, whereas on LinkedIn, you were more likely to see an informational advert. And broadly speaking, informational appeals have a strong negative effect on sharing. Except when the advertised item involves risky purchase contexts such as new or high-priced products. So I guess maybe you're trying to appeal to someone to make an informed gamble. But if you're not going for information, then emotion is the way forwards. Ads that evoke emotions like inspiration, warmth, amusement and excitement stimulate strong positive sharing. They point out that babies and animals are stronger at driving shares than celebrities are. In spite of that, in their sample, 26% of adverts featured celebrities and only 3% used babies and animals. I for one would definitely rather look at a kitten than a Kardashian. Speaking of, prominent brand placement, of which I suppose the Kardashians have kind of become in and of themselves, does impair sharing. Lengthy, early, or intermittent placement of a brand name drives less sharing than just having a big title card at the end. I absolutely love the idea that someone might go to one of the younger ones, the Jenna ones. I can never remember which one's which, but one of them has the lip makeups. I love the idea that, uh, no, actually, honey, put your face away. (laughs) It would definitely be a departure. It would generate a lot of buzz. And ideally, an advert shouldn't be more than between 1.2 and 1.7 minutes in length. Apparently, that is the optimum time for sharing. However, again, out of the selected sample, only 25% were between 1 and 1.5 minutes. So, you know, there's some tips if you want to go viral on YouTube five years ago. Let's keep looking at it and see if this has remained consistent up to the present. I'm trying to think, have there been any advertising campaigns about a minute and a half in length that... Don't rely too much on information, but have a very emotive, positive, driving kind of message that have a baby in, that only have a brand name right at the end. Have Huggies just had it right the whole time? 
Guinness. They do long adverts. They often feature animals. There's the horse one. There's the evolution one. They only tell you it's a Guinness advert right at the end because good things come to those who wait. Boom. Dear American Marketing Association, we are available for contact. We're not much help. Go to whoever Guinness buys. We are available for expert insight consultation at any time at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. But if you can't choose us to figure out exactly what it is you're doing right or wrong, well, I can't blame you. It's a busy world. There's a lot out there. You might come down with some of that option paralysis. What do I do? What do I listen to? Who do I ask? Well, if there's too much choice out there in the world, then, according to the University of Buffalo, you are just plain likely to freeze up. This doesn't seem exactly news to me. Someone who frequently walks into restaurants, looks at the menu and goes, Let's go somewhere where they only do cheese toasties or something. A cheese toasty restaurant in Bristol would probably smash it. Yeah, there's that one at the street food market. You're right. The grilled cheese guys. We should go this weekend. I had that buffalo one once. It was amazing. Like buffalo mozzarella, buffalo wing sauce. Buffalo wing sauce. This is described by Thomas Saltzman, a graduate student in the University of Buffalo Department of Psychology and co-author of this study with Mark Seary, who is the Associate Professor of Psychology, as the paralyzing paradox. That you want to make a good choice but feel like you can't. A combination of perceiving high stakes and low ability may contribute to a deep-seated fear that one will inevitably make the wrong choice which could stifle the decision-making process. Happily, they do offer a little advice for how to deal with the situation. Saltzman says, It may also be helpful to enter high-choice situations with a few clear guidelines of what you want from your desired option. Doing so may not only help scale down the number of possible choices by eliminating options that don't meet your guidelines, but may also bolster confidence and trust in your ability to find a choice that meets your needs. So, any time you're going into a high-choice situation, think about what you want out of it. Co-author Mark Seary does mention later on in this press release, We love having these choices, but when we're actually faced with having to choose from among countless options, the whole process goes south. Research shows that, in fact, people often regret their decision in these cases, but what our research suggests is that this kind of turn, the inherent paradox of liking choices and then being troubled by choices, happens almost immediately. The transition, he says, is fascinating. Which is exactly the kind of phrase that a supervillain would use. (laughs) I'm just saying, Mark, you might want to tone it down a bit. And indeed, the way they tested this was by giving people a stressful choice situation of giving them a collection of fake dating profiles and asking them to choose their ideal partner from the bunch. They were using a bunch of psychophysiological measures throughout this and found that when faced with a large number of profiles to choose from, rather than a small number, participants' hearts and blood vessels revealed they'd experienced making their choices being both more important and more overwhelming. So, as in so many things, when you go on those dating sites, have in mind the things that are important to you. And the things that are less important to you. Is it more important that they have a university education than that they're tall? Are both of those equally important? Are you just looking for a pretty one? Have an idea what you want. In dating and in cheese toasties. Keep your priorities clear. (laughs) Our next piece of research from the University of Kansas is a topic that we haven't touched in a little while. It's been a fair few episodes since we've done anything spacey. But this is the spaciest space news I've seen in I don't know how long. And it's potentially revolutionary. It's really big. 
And I would like to thank Alison Kirkpatrick, who is Assistant Professor in Physics and Astronomy at the University of Kansas, for doing such a good job throughout this press release of explaining a very big concept very clearly and very well. And this is in contrast to whoever wrote the press release, who has peppered in all sorts of analogies that I think are supposed to make people feel more engaged and more like it's closer to home. I'm not sure how well it works to say a quasar is essentially a supermassive black hole on steroids. I mean, well, you're a professional science communicator with a science communication education. Does making analogies like that work for people, or is it, as I feel it is, a bit patronising? First of all, conceptualise a black hole. That's, I mean, within the realms of what a lot of people can kind of reach. Like, the black hole is about part of modern parlance. Now conceptualise a supermassive black hole. I don't know what that does to the physics. I, is it just bigger? Massive, so that means it's there's more mass to attract. Okay, now imagine that, but bigger and scarier and stronger. And and also, and also, it's got big muscles and it's angry and its junk is shrunk. It does kind of fall apart just a little bit. Okay, how about this newly discovered cold quasar phase being akin to a human being throwing a retirement party? Listeners, given that we've not given you any idea yet what this cold quasar phase is. Just ponder for a second what the phrase it's like a human having a retirement party sort of brings to mind, and then as we get into this a little bit more, let's see how well that matches up. So, let's start with a quasar, the already described supermassive black hole on steroids. Gas falling towards a quasar at the centre of a galaxy forms an accretion disk. So far as we can tell. So far as we can tell which can cast off an apparently mind-boggling amount of electromagnetic energy, often featuring luminosity hundreds of times greater than a typical galaxy. So, black hole, big black hole, super big, very scary black hole, stuff falling into it, gas falling into it, dust falling into it, all swirling round and round and round, you rub a bunch of charged particles together, and they start making electromagnetic stuff happen, like electricity, magnetism, and radiation. I'm going to cut to Kirkpatrick here who says, all the gas that is accreting on the black hole is being heated and giving off x-rays. The wavelength of light that you give off corresponds directly to how hot you are. Makes sense. Get hotter, get brighter, make different wavelength of light. You know, like a light bulb filament. Hmm. For example, you and I give off infrared light. You can see that on thermal cameras. But something that's giving off x-rays is one of the hottest things in the universe. This gas starts accreting onto the black hole, brackets falling in, and starts moving at relativistic speeds. You also have the magnetic field around this gas, it can get twisted up in the same way that you get solar flares. You can have jets of material go up through these magnetic field lines and be shot away from the black hole. Hopefully everyone is picturing the middle third of Interstellar at this point, because that's what's in my head, and I think that looks about right. Yeah, that was while the science in that was still really strong. Before it got weird. These jets essentially choke off the gas supply of the galaxy, so no more gas can fall into the galaxy to form new stars. After a galaxy has stopped forming stars, we say it is a passive, dead galaxy. Is everyone with me so far? Lots of gas falling into very big black hole makes big shiny x-rays, makes, makes big bursts of gas and dust and stuff, which then pulls everything in more, and then eventually you run out. Okay? Yeah, that's how the quasar stage of a galaxy's lifespan has, up until now, been assumed to always work. However, 
in Kirkpatrick's survey, which took large swathes of the night sky and assessed them for activity, for X-ray emission, about 10% of galaxies hosting accreting supermassive black holes, this kind of pre- to mid-quasar phase, had a supply of cold gas remaining after entering this phase and still made new stars. So the thing that should happen right at the end of their life cycle, where everything gets too big, too bright, emits a huge burst of energy and then snuffs itself out, there's still enough energy, enough mass, enough stuff happening in the centre of that galaxy there still going on to make new stars. That in itself is surprising, says Kirkpatrick. The whole population is a whole bunch of different objects. Some of the galaxies in this survey have very obvious merger signatures. Some of them look a lot like the Milky Way and have very obvious spiral arms. Some are very compact. From this whole diverse survey, we then have a further 10% that is really unique and unexpected. Compact blue luminous sources. They look like you'd expect a supermassive black hole to look in the end stages after it's quenched all of the star formation in the galaxy. This is evolving. These are the population which Kirkpatrick is calling cold quasars. So they are supposed to be out of fuel. They're supposed to be at the end of their life. This is supposed to be the retirement party. But there's new stars being made. No, no, the new stars being made is the retirement party, according to the slightly naff analogy. Okay, are the new stars like the candles on the cake that say 65, or are they the carriage clock? I'm not sure. I think that's why it's a bad analogy. If we're really comparing it to a human lifespan, surely the point where it should have retired, but is still making stars, is like Grandad getting a job as a greeter in the supermarket? Or is it one of your elderly colleagues who really should retire... But it's still sticking around because no one quite wants to kick him off the payroll just yet. This analogy has maybe come a little bit apart in our hands. So again, a quick quote from Kirkpatrick, who rounds off this whole press release saying that this is a transition phase of, let's say, 10 million years. In universal timescales, that is really short, and it's hard to catch this thing. We're doing what we call a blind survey to find objects we weren't even looking for, and by finding those objects, it could imply that this happens to every galaxy. So this blind survey of looking up at space and seeing what you find has kind of upended what we assumed was the life cycle of galaxies. And that is the raddest I've ever heard. <laughs> it's a pretty big deal. And obviously more work needs to be done to establish if this is something that happens to every galaxy or something that only happens to some of them, but it's a a big change to the established theories. And we love those. It's we should so all cool. get really excited about those, because that's the point of science, is you get your information and you go, ooh, rewrite the rule book. Another very important question. We started off with an important question at the start of this episode, asking if penguins are left or right-handed. And now we can wrap up with the equally important question from the University of Surrey. Can we still have fun? if we go carbon neutral? The UK, specifically. And the answer is a resounding yes. You might need to go outside to do it once in a while. Indeed, in this paper, published in the Journal of Public Mental Health, researchers do find that it is entirely possible to achieve mental gratification and physical social wellness by doing activities like playing cards, reading books, singing in choirs, playing games outside with friends. If you do these so well that you have to travel internationally in competitions, then that does somewhat take the edge off. 
but it is entirely possible to have a good time without burning dinosaur juice. Co-author Birgitta Gatesleben, reader in environmental psychology, points out, It's easier to make progress at a local level. We need to support investment in local infrastructure, such as sports and community centres, and also provide facilities for safer cycling and walking to support more sustainable local travel. Which is, you know, stuff we should be going for anyway, but also if we're going to be trying to consume less, trying to be green, trying to improve the air that we're trying to breathe, then yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's not exactly revolutionary information, but I think it's still important that you know. If you have any revolutionary information that you would like for us to know, then send it to us at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at EurekaNerdcast. You can find us on Facebook forward slash EurekaNerd. If you really like the revolutionary information that we have imparted to you this episode, or in any of the other 55 episodes that we've recorded so far, then you can maybe drop a few pennies our way at ko-fi.com forward slash Eureka Nerd as well. And any donations made through there will help us offset the costs of creating and hosting all this wonderful, wonderful content, and just show your appreciation for us. For more science stuff, head over to stimulus.network to hear from some of our partner shows, like The Cosmic Shed, where they talk to all kinds of interesting people about the interesting stuff they do, some of which does involve playing games, some of which does involve big scary space stuff, some of which may involve penguins. There's also the Spooktator, we spoke with Hayley in a previous episode, and For What It's Earth and Inside the Petri Dish too. But just before we part ways, to really tease your noggin with absolutely revolutionary information, who could have imagined that handgun licensing is more effective at reducing gun deaths than background checks alone? If nothing else, possibly because having to go through a longer process to obtain a gun discourages people from trying to obtain a gun. If you have any issues with that, you can take it up with Johns Hopkins University. I mean, what do they know about public health after all? Alternatively, from the University of Southern California, who would ever have considered the revolutionary, mind-blowing concept that e-cigarette cartoon adverts may increase the likelihood of vaping? You know, like how... Joe Camel had such an impact on people smoking. Who'd have thought advertising works? We'll leave you to puzzle over those. But for now, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.